uh, invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it to Paul's letter uh, to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, we call it. First Timothy. And uh, so open your Bibles there. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles under the chair in front of you, you'll find First Timothy on page 932. First Timothy is toward the back of the New Testament and thus towards the back uh, of your Bibles. Uh, we begin today a, a five-week uh, a shorter sort of sermon series uh, that, or I should say we're diving back into uh, for five weeks, a, an existing and ongoing sermon series. It's called Woven. The point of these uh, sermons is to look at whole books of the Bible all at one sitting. Don't worry, we won't be here for five hours this morning. But to get kind of a bird's eye view of whole books of the Bible for a couple of reasons. One, so that, uh, so that we can read our Bibles better as we're studying them on our own, but also uh, so that we can see how God is working from Genesis at the first and Revelation at the last. As God is working through all of it, his story of redemption, his work of rescuing people uh, from their sin for himself through his son, Jesus the Christ. Today we're looking at Paul's first letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy. Uh, hopefully uh, you received as you're coming in from our greeters uh, a little uh, bifold handout. And if you happen to miss one, uh, don't worry. Uh, you can grab one uh, after worship this morning. There'll probably be some out in the foyer that you can grab and stick in your Bible. But you can kind of follow along uh, as we're working through 1 Timothy. And uh, I encourage you, if it's helpful... Uh, Take that sheet, maybe tuck it in your Bible or file it away somewhere as a reference for you when you're studying 1 Timothy, as we've looked at all of these different uh, whole books of the Bible up to this point. uh, Use it as a reference, as a way of reminding you what's going on there in that book and and how to kind of follow the major themes through uh, the various books of the Bible that we've studied in this way, 1 Timothy being the one we look at today. Uh, About almost 20 years ago now, it's, it's not fun when you reach an age where you can say almost 20 years ago and you remember things as an adult 20 years ago. That's, I'm approaching that age. But almost 20 years ago, uh, I was, for a brief season of my life, a motorcycle rider, owner, enthusiast. Uh, shortly after high school, a couple years into college, me and a couple buddies went and took a riding course together. Uh, we each bought motorcycles and, um, and we rode bikes for, uh, I don't know, for three or four years before I ended up moving to California and had to sell it so I could make that move to go to seminary. Um, Nevertheless, when I bought a motorcycle, I didn't buy a new one because I was in college and I didn't have a lot of money. And so all the money that I had, I spent on buying an old motorcycle. Uh, and, and so I wanted to be able to, in order to save money and learn a little bit, uh, just learn how to maintain the bike myself. So I went out and bought a, a maintenance and repair manual uh, that is based on a total teardown and rebuild of that, spe- uh, of that specific model of motorcycle. So that if you want to change your oil, adjust the valves, uh, change the brakes, adjust the brakes, whatever the case might be, you can, you can see with uh, detailed pictures and detailed instructions exactly how to do the job. And if you have the right tools, you can get it done on your own without having to take it to a repair shop or to a mechanic. That manual was incredibly helpful because of the excruciatingly, sometimes painful detail into which it went uh, about carrying out basic maintenance on the motorcycle. Detailed manuals are really, really helpful. I wish that God had given such a detailed manual about the church. Uh, 
and how the church ought to function. It's kind of funny. Paul writes to Timothy in this first letter, probably near the end of Paul's life, early to mid-60s AD. He is probably, uh, Paul is either in prison in Rome or, or has just uh, been released from his first imprisonment in Rome, writing to Timothy, who he left in that great city, Ephesus, where Paul spent a longer period of time than any other city leaving Timothy there to lead the church, to guide the church. And he's writing here now this letter to instruct Timothy on how the church ought to behave, how it should carry on. In fact, he tells us that this is his reason for writing. In chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, he says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. I'm writing so you can know how things ought to be ordered in the church. Now, as we make our way through Timothy, we're going to find scant detailed instruction for how the church ought to function. So is Paul's letter a failure to Timothy? No, certainly not. I don't think so. What we find instead of detailed instructions, step-by-step policy and procedure manuals in 1 Timothy, what we instead find is a, a repeated encouragement to Timothy and the church to pursue godliness. That in the church, godliness is of great gain. That godliness is, is the way to organize and order yourself as a church. Now, that sounds kind of weird when you just say the way to be a well-functioning church is to pursue godliness. That doesn't make a lot of sense when you're trying to maintain a motorcycle. If, if, the, if the instruction manual said, said simply, step one, pursue motorcyclosity. <laughs> and then it's just the back cover after that. That's not much of an instruction manual. And yet, when it comes to the church, that's kind of what Paul is saying to Timothy and to the believers in Ephesus, pursue godliness. Now, he does give some more detail along the way than than just that, but that's the main theme of this letter, the main encouragement to this young leader at this church in Ephesus. Now, every time that we look at a whole book of the Bible like this, we want to try to, before we dive into all the particulars of it, we, we want to try to place this book of the Bible in the scope of redemption history. Redemption history is that story of God's rescuing work from the beginning until the end. And we, we cover this uh, most weeks as we look uh, at the Bible in some way, shape, or form, maybe not as detailed as this, but we do certainly in every uh, installment of this Woven series. So First Timothy, in the scope of redemption, well, or redemption history, we know that redemption, uh, God's work of rescuing sinners, begins with the creation, creation of all things, Genesis 1. God speaks and the world comes into existence. He makes man and woman in his image out of the dust of the ground uh, to uh, know and love and worship and glorify him in the world. We know that not long after our first parents' creation, Adam and Eve, that they fell. They disobeyed the one command that God had given to them in the garden. And in their fall, they, uh, uh, in their fall into sin, they break fellowship with God. And now because all of us are descended from Adam and Eve, as they became sinners, we are born sinful. We are born with a disposition to rebel and disobey God from our, our first uh, uh, conscious moment. God in his justice would have been justified and right to leave sinful humanity in their sin, or maybe even to wipe us out and start over with a new creation. But in his mercy and in his love, he doesn't. 
Because he made us to know and love and worship him, to bring glory to him, knowing that that is our our greatest and highest aim and purpose in life, he makes a way to rescue us from our sin, to redeem us. And that uh, means of redemption comes through his son, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, living among us without sin, dying on a cross, and on the cross taking all of the penalty for all of our sin, being buried after dying and then rising again in power and victory on the third day. And now Jesus calls men and women, children from every tribe, nation, tongue, uh, and people group all around the world to believe on him, to turn from sin, to trust in him, and that in trusting in him, they will be saved. They will be redeemed. Now, that's not the end of the story, though. We, we certainly we, we long for, we look for, we rejoice in the salvation we've received in Christ, but we're also looking for a day when that same Jesus who is raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father will return again to consummate his kingdom, to bring his kingdom to come and to bear in a new heavens and a new earth where we who have been saved by God's grace through Christ will live with him forever. First Timothy finds its place in God's redemption history somewhere in those last two epics in redemption and consummation. Because 1 Timothy is looking primarily at the functioning of the church. It's looking at the body of those who, have, uh, uh, body of those who are redeemed. It's looking at those who have trusted Christ and how they live as followers of Christ together until Christ comes again. So if you're wanting to locate 1 Timothy in the scope of redemption history and you're taking notes this morning, you may want to circle maybe those last two chunks, redemption and consummation, or, or maybe the arrow in between those two epics, uh, between redemption and consummation. 1 Timothy is somewhere in there. It's, it's a, applied to those who have trusted Christ, all with this hope and expectation of Christ's nearing return. So Paul writes to Timothy to tell him, As you order the church, do so pursuing godliness, because godliness is of great gain. As we look through 1 Timothy today, we're going to see four things, or this theme of godliness applied in four different areas throughout this letter. First of all, we'll see that godliness is disregarded by certain false teachers in Ephesus. We'll see that godliness is demanded of church leaders. Godliness is distinctive of church members and that godliness is ultimately demonstrated and distributed by Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at that first point. Godliness is disregarded. That thing which is so necessary for the church is disregarded by certain false teachers. Now this really is the primary reason that Paul writes this letter to Timothy. There are certain persons in the church in Ephesus who have become fascinated with matters and ideas and ideologies that are not from the gospel and in many ways are contrary to the gospel. These people have walked away from their faith and by their influence they have taken others along with them. Paul urges Timothy specifically to confront people like this and to command them to stop teaching what contradicts the truth of Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul describes their obsessions in chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. You can follow along in your Bibles. Paul says to Timothy, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertion. Paul says, confront these false teachers, Timothy. Now, don't miss this. Paul's desire is to love these false teachers back to the truth. He says, the aim of our charge is love. I'm commanding you to do this, Timothy, because I love these people who have walked away from the truth. Love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Paul loves the Ephesians, even the ones who have wandered away from the faith. He loves them enough to correct them when they're wrong. Even enough to point out two men in particular in chapter 2, verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These two men that Paul says have walked away from the faith and a good conscience into a perversion of, of some, some sort of perversion of the Jewish faith and have ultimately shipwrecked their faith in Christ. Now, there are a lot of people in the Bible who, who are remembered notably and for good reason. Of course, we know Paul, Timothy, Peter, James, John, Jude, those that have books named after them, books that they uh, authored. But we also know of men like Philemon and Onesimus, people like Junia and Justice, Apollos, Priscilla, Aquila, people that are remembered for their contribution and their service to the church, people that when we grow up, we want to be like. Well, Hymenaeus and Alexander are not people like that. Hymenaeus and Alexander are the exact opposite. How would you like to be remembered for time immemorial as being one who wandered away from faith in Christ and shipwrecked their life? This is the case with Hymenaeus and Alexander because they followed after and maybe even become these false teachers in the church at Ephesus. Now, our current culture in the 21st century, influenced by postmodernism as it is, would be prone to say, what's the harm in somebody believing something that's just a little bit weird? Right? Maybe they're, let's not call them unorthodox. Let's not call them heretics. Maybe they're just asking hard questions that people haven't asked before. Maybe they're just, maybe they're just flirting with the edges of orthodoxy, of, of right doctrine, just to see what's, what's out there. And so what if they step over the line a little bit, right? Like everybody has to find their own truth. We all need to pursue our own truth in life to live our fully actualized selves. If these people in Ephesus, Hymenaeus and Alexander, if they had found their truth, why is Paul so strictly opposed to them? Why so harsh, dude? Well, the reason is, the reason that Paul corrects them so strictly, so sternly, is that truth, if it is true, excludes all other competing claims to be truth. Truth by itself is exclusive. The danger in allowing those like Hymenaeus and Alexander to teach what is contrary to the gospel is that they will teach as true what is a lie and deceive many into following them, deceive many into walking into perdition, into condemnation, into death and lostness in their sin. Paul warns Timothy about what false teachers will try to teach in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything that is created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul says the kind of things that these false teachers teach are things that are contrary to the gospel. They're even demonic in nature. 
these false teachers are, are those who regularly tell people to abstain from certain foods, even to abstain from marriage. Those things are bad. Those things are wicked. Don't, don't involve yourself in those things. You need to live this more ascetic, monastic kind of life. You need to leave the world behind and only do these things. Paul says that we can even, he tells Timothy, that we can even discern danger from a distance. We can spot out a false teacher or a a deceiving teacher just by watching their way of life and their tendencies. In chapter 6, verses 3 to 5, Paul says to Timothy, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, there's that word, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers, Paul says, disregard godliness by teaching what God has not said, by demanding what God has not demanded, and by pursuing what Christ himself has said to flee from. It's interesting. I I think the way that Paul characterizes false teachers in his day is not a whole lot different than how we ought to characterize false teachers today. Look at verse 4 and verse 5 of chapter 6. Paul says these false teachers, uh, well, first of all, are puffed up with conceit. They're arrogant. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words, which ultimately produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth. They're greedy for dishonest gain, thinking that being in ministry, being a leader in the church is a good way to get rich. There's a lot about the description of these false teachers in 1 Timothy 6 that I think is spot on with most of the people who claim to be Christian and are engaging in social media like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and that kind of thing. I can't tell you how many people on my Twitter feed, and maybe this is an indictment on myself, I, I, there's too much time on Twitter, how many people claim to be Christian on Twitter, and yet all of their tweets are about controversies, quarrels about words, envious of others, stirring up dissension, slandering other people, purporting evil suspicion, creating constant friction, a bunch of whole other people in the social media world that are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth. And all of them are doing it to get follows, to get likes, so that they can monetize their feed and get rich. If you'll receive it, friend, I have a word for you today. Church, false teachers are not just in the local church today. We find them in many corners of our culture and on every political side. Men and women who wear the label of Christian but who use political conspiracies, quarreling in the media, twisted gospels that cannot save, new age-inspired spiritualism, and idolatrous worship of human beings and human institutions for the sake of their own power, for the sake of their own pursuit of wealth, for puffing up their own ego. Watch out for them. Recognize them. And run from the ungodliness that they are peddling. Godliness is disregarded by false teachers in Timothy's day and in ours. But when it comes to the church, godliness is demanded of church leaders. It's a, it's a requisite for those who will lead in the church. Now, Paul's letter is first to Timothy. It's a, it's a personal letter. It's not first to the church, though very quickly on in church history, the church came to see Paul's words as inspired by the Holy Spirit and profitable for all the church to know. But it's first of all a letter to Timothy. As a leader of the church in Ephesus, which was threatened by false teachers, it is imperative that Timothy pursue and model a godly example for believers to follow. 
Paul gives Timothy several charges, several urgings. He uses those words throughout this letter to correct what is false, Timothy, and teach what is true. But his most pointed instruction to Timothy comes in chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, if you'll permit a longer reading. Paul writes, If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, another characterization of these false teachers. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, it's good to go to the gym, Timothy, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in faith, in purity. Students in our church, you know that verse. It's painted on the wall in the youth room. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy, when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Godliness is of value in every way, Paul says. It's valuable today because it shows the evidence of God's transforming work in the life of the one who follows Jesus. And it's valuable for the life to come as we prepare ourselves for a life with Christ in heaven when he returns. As a younger leader, not 16 or 17, but probably in his early 30s, godliness would be the great validating point of Timothy's ministry and his leadership. Many in the church may have had things to say about Timothy's youth and inexperience. What does this 30-year-old guy know? We've been around the block a lot more times than he has. What good is he? What does he know about leading a church, they may say. But Paul says, let the church, even though they may have things to say about your youth and inexperience, let them have nothing to say about your lack of godliness. In fact, the pursuit of godliness in Timothy's life ought to be the sort that even old men look at and follow as an example Paul also gives instruction to other leaders in the church, not just to Timothy. He speaks specifically to the two offices of the church, overseers. We would also call them pastors or elders, and to deacons. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we read these words. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, elder, pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, another problem of those false teachers, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. 
For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Elders, overseers, and deacons, these two officers of the church, Elders serve the church by leading, spiritually teaching, exhorting, reading the scriptures like Paul encourages Timothy to do. And deacons lead the church in their service and caring for the needs of the church, the temporal needs, administrative needs, making sure people in the church have what they need and are cared for. So what sort of people ought these two officers be? What sort of people ought pastors and elders, overseers to be? What sort of people ought deacons to be? Well, like Timothy, they're to be godly in every way. We read chapter 3. That's what we see, a description of godly leaders. We understand that the office of overseer or pastor is reserved for men as God has designed according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, and this passage as well. But the office of pastor is only reserved for a certain kind of man, godly ones. The same goes for deacons. Now, there is in history a pattern of both men and women serving in the church as deacons. Uh, even from its earliest day, we, we see men and women serving the church as deacons. Uh, different churches do different things depending on their context and, and what is best for their life as a church, but we see that in church history. But the only significant difference between overseer and, and deacon qualifications, other than the office of overseers reserved for men, is that overseers, pastors, elders, must be able to teach. That's the only significant difference in the description of the two. And by the way, it's the only skill-based competency for the overseer. Everything else is related to his character. That they must be able to teach makes sense if they're to be those like Timothy who teach what is true, who refute what is false. But every other qualification is about their character. It's not just about how they carry themselves and appear to other people. It's about the inner person. It's about whether their heart has truly been transformed by God's grace through their faith in Jesus to be a different kind of person in the world, full of integrity and honor and good fruit of the Spirit. So what is the most important thing for leaders in the church to have? Executive experience? Charismatic personality? The ability to rouse a whole bunch of volunteers to do great things in their community? No. The most important thing for leaders in the church to have is godliness, Christ-like character, commitment to the truth of the gospel, love for the church of Jesus Christ, personal integrity and honor. Friends, the church deserves leaders like this. And God insists on it for those who aspire to lead this way because their leadership should serve to help others to follow not them, but to follow Christ, the very Son of God. Godliness is demanded of church leaders. But further on, we see that it's not just church leaders who are to be marked by godliness, also church members. Godliness, Paul says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is distinctive of church members, of Christians. So before you go thinking that godliness is just something that leaders have to do and pursue, know that Paul has a lot to say about the godliness of you too, Christian. Leaders though God insists on their godliness, are not held to any sort of standard of holiness that's higher than, than is for all of the body of Christ. Only that leaders, uh, uh, overseers and deacons, ought to exemplify this godliness so that the church can see a physical example and follow it well. In fact, it is as much a responsibility for the church to pursue godliness as it is for their leaders to pursue godliness. And it, is God, and it is the godliness of the church on the whole that serves as a remedy for and a guardrail against the kind of false teaching that was going on in Ephesus. 
Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't say to the church, and we'll look at it in a moment, he doesn't say to the church, in order to refute false teaching, know all the right apologetic answers to those who question the faith. In order to refute false teaching, church, Paul does not say, you've got to know the Bible and everything in it and have an answer all the time for every possible question that could come up. No, he says, if you want to guard against false teaching, be godly. Pursue godliness. He encourages godliness in worship. When the church gathers, they are to demonstrate godliness in how they gather. When we gather, we should demonstrate godliness in the way that we gather. Men should set an example of godly prayer for all people. And women, contrary to the more licentious influence of false teachers, women were to comport themselves in ways that honor their husbands and honor the Lord. Look at 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 15. Paul says to Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. By the way, he's calling for prayer for kings and emperors, governors and high positions in a context and a culture that does not like Christians. Pray for them all that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Skipping down to verse 8, he says, I desire then that at every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Maybe indicating that some of the men like to, lift, like to lift their hands to do other things with them. Paul says, lift your hands, lift holy hands to pray without anger or quarreling. Likewise also, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with, if I can insert here, the trappings of a licentious society. Not with the trappings or the, the appearance of women who are maybe out to lure men away from their wives or whatever. Don't dress like a prostitute is in part what Paul is saying. That they should adorn themselves not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. The things that in that day prostitutes would wear. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is in the context of the worshipful gathering of the church. I think this is where Paul is saying that, that, uh, that women are not to serve as pastors or overseers of a body. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Quiet does not mean silent. It's the same word that Paul says that we ought to, uh, for which we ought to pray for kings and all the, who are in high positions, that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. It seems that there were some women in Ephesus who were being rather disruptive in the worship. So Paul says... Be peaceful. When worship is done, you can talk some more, ask questions, but be peaceful. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let me just admit, there are some difficult parts of this passage. But what's at stake in all of this is godliness. We could spend several more weeks just on these few verses in a whole sermon series. We don't have time for that this morning. That's not the purpose of this sermon series. What's at stake in all of this, though, is godliness in the body when they worship. It is godly for men to lead the church in prayer. And men, not just from the pulpit, not just from the platform, but in the hallways, in the foyer, in classrooms, in the parking lot, out back when we're pulling weeds. It's good for men to be prayer leaders in every aspect of the church. Regular humility, demonstrated dependence on God is just one part of godliness. So men, Christians, do not underestimate the impact of simple, humble prayer offered publicly. When you're in your Bible study class later this morning and you're getting ready to start or ready to close and your Bible study leader says, would someone like to pray? Men, 
pray. Likewise, it is godly for women to beautify themselves, not with the trappings of a licentious world, but to beautify themselves with godly humility and Christ-like conduct. There's a whole lot more that we could stop and say on this passage about gender roles and God's design for men and women in the church and in the home, but the main point is clear. Orderly, humble worship that honors God's design for men and women and that seeks to honor one another is distinctive of God's people. Living like this, friends, has perhaps never been more countercultural than it is today in our culture of confused gender ideology, in our culture of godlessness, in our culture of individualism, living godly, worshiping in a godly way like the Holy Spirit instructs the church at Ephesus to do in chapter 2, has maybe never been more countercultural than it is today. And yet, it's about godliness. Godliness in worship is meant to be a picture to the world of the goodness of God when we follow His intention and His design for us. So Paul calls the church to have godliness in their worship. He also calls them to have godliness in their relationships. And not just marriage relationships or friendships, but the way that the church relates to and cares for one another. If you'll turn over to chapter 5, you'll find uh, several significant instructions for how the church should live among each other in godly ways. This is probably the, the place in 1 Timothy where we do get specific instruction about the, what the church is supposed to do. Step-by-step instructions for what to do. But if we just take a quick survey of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6, we see this. That godliness looks like honoring older men like fathers and older women like mothers. Honoring younger men like brothers and younger women like sisters. Godliness looks like caring for widows who have no other source of income or care. Godliness looks like caring for one's own family members, particularly if they are widows, and not burdening the church to care for those that are in your own home. Godliness looks like caring for elders, pastors who labor hard to teach and preach. And godliness looks like pastors caring well by shepherding believers without partiality or for personal gain. Godliness looks like those who are slaves honoring their masters and not using their freedom in Christ as a license to disobey disobey believing masters. All of these things, friends, are countercultural in some way. But godliness among the relationships of the church is characterized by one thing above all, honor. Honor. A word, a concept that is in many ways lost on our current context. Honor is more than respect. It's more than generosity. Honor is demonstrating in discernible ways that you regard other people around you as valuable, as costly, that you regard other people as lovely and worthy of your service even. Paul encouraged the church at Rome the same way. In Romans 12, 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is how the church shows godliness in their relationships by honoring one another in every appropriate way. One way we can evaluate the godliness of our church is by asking, how well do we honor one another? How valuable do we see each other? How how worthy of our service do we see those who are sitting around us and in our small groups and maybe not with us today because they're providentially hindered by health or some other reason? This much is true. False teaching and division thrive in contexts and in churches where people are not honored in godly ways. Dear Christian, I hope that you see the protective power of the gospel that you have as a follower of Christ simply by honoring your brothers and sisters in Christ and toward Christ. 
Honoring your husbands or your wives as God has instructed. Honoring the widows and the orphans among us. Honoring those who lead faithfully. And leaders, honoring those who follow your leadership. Godliness is distinctive of church members. But finally, throughout 1 Timothy, we find that godliness is ultimately demonstrated and finally distributed by Christ. Godliness is not a thing that we stir up in ourselves to do. It's a thing that's been demonstrated by Christ and given to us that we might work it out in His power. It's important in this final point for us to realize that Paul does not expect the church at Ephesus to be godly in their own effort. In fact, godliness is a mystery, he says, that is best revealed by Christ. Now, that word mystery doesn't mean it's like a mystery to solve. What that means is it's a, it's a heavenly reality, a heavenly truth for which there is no earthly analogy. We can't compare godliness to anything very well that we see on earth. And, and yet it is true and it is real and it is demonstrated by Jesus. In his purpose statement, we read it at the beginning, we'll read it now at the end. In his purpose statement for, reading, for writing this letter, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, he says in verse 16, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, speaking of Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Godliness is the aim of the church, but it is first demonstrated by Jesus. We have this little poem about Christ in chapter 3, verse 16, that summarizes so much of the gospel message for us. Christ, the Son of God, added humanity to His divinity and was raised from the dead after dying for sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was attested and attended by angels in His resurrection. His resurrection preached, was preached among the nations and He was believed, the gospel was believed by many in the world and continues even today. And then Jesus ascended to the Father. It's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the church lives, as Paul says in verse 15, to uphold like a pillar and a buttress. Now, pillars, buttresses, these architectural features usually serve to support a roof so it doesn't collapse in on those who are inside the structure. That's not quite what Paul is saying about the church here. Rather, what he's saying is that like a pillar, like a buttress, the church exists to hold high the wonderful, beautiful picture of Christ in all His glory. To lift it up. That's what we serve to do. Not because it'll fall on his own, but because that's what we're made for, to glorify Jesus in the godliness that he works in and through us. Godliness in its greatest form in Christ is evident in Jesus, and we exist to exalt him, to hold him up like a pillar, like a buttress for all the world to see. But Jesus doesn't just demonstrate godliness in his life, in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He also distributes godliness to those who believe on him. We're reminded in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, Paul says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 
It is this Jesus who stands in the place of sinners at the cross. It is this Jesus who pleads our case before God. It is this Jesus who called Paul as an apostle and strengthened him for ministry. It's this Jesus who gives mercy and grace to those who trust him. It's this Jesus who makes us righteous when we had no righteousness of our own. Godliness is essential for the church. It's denied by false teachers. It's demanded of church leaders. It's distinctive of church members. But godliness is not according to our own estimation or our own definition of it. Godliness is demonstrated by Jesus. And godliness is not attained by our own efforts. Did you know you cannot be godly all on your own? (laughs) Godliness is initiated by Christ who works it into us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friend, do you know this gift of Christ, of godliness? Have you understood that He is the Son of God? That in love He died for your sins? That in power He was raised from the dead? Friend, do you believe that He is King of kings? And have you come to Him that He might be Lord of your life? Godliness is not withheld from those who desire it. We see it perfectly in Christ and we receive it from His gracious hand when we repent of our sin and believe on Him. Godliness is demonstrated by Jesus and distributed by Jesus to all who seek for it in faith. So what good is godliness in the church? Simply this. It glorifies God for all the world to see. It doesn't just help a church to function well. Godliness glorifies the Father for all the world to see. As the church of Jesus Christ, bought by His blood, saved for God's glory, existing to hold high the truth of Jesus like a pillar and a buttress so that all the world might see it and come to Him. We walk in godliness. So that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16, He who is, speaking of God, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. That's what we live for. That's what we live for. That's why we pursue godliness, so that God will receive glory in us. That's why we order ourselves in worship. That's why we honor one another in relationships. That's why we look for godly men and women to lead us. It's why we refute the godlessness and the ungodliness of false teaching so that we can lift Jesus high for the world to see. Not to show off that we have all the best policies and procedures and staff and all of that, but so that the world can see Christ, can love Him, see their need of Him, and follow Him as we have. What good is godliness in the church? Godliness is of great gain. It's of value in every way for us. So as we seek to be the body of Christ, the followers of Jesus, his ambassadors in the world, salt and light to a watching world, let's pursue godliness. Friend, this morning, if you don't know Jesus this way, if you don't know the godliness that he gives, the relationship with God that he provides, will you come find me after worship after we're done here this morning. Let's talk about how you can know Christ, how you can be saved. A friend, if maybe this morning you're, you're thinking a little bit because you've seen Katie's testimony of baptism this morning, of her following Jesus and wanting to do that every day of her life. Friend, if you've been following Jesus for some time, trusting him for salvation, but you've not been baptized in obedience to him as his word calls us to, and you want to be, come talk to me. Let's talk about you being baptized, what it means and why it's important for you. If maybe you were baptized before you were a believer, 
We would say as Baptists that baptism always comes after faith and by immersion. So if you're baptized before you were believing Jesus, friend, I tell you this morning, you haven't really been baptized. So, but if you're believing now and you need to be baptized, come talk to me. Let's talk about this and how you can have assurance of salvation, assurance of God's working godliness in your life. And church, we who are following Jesus faithfully, let's pursue godliness together, honoring one another in all that we do so that Christ might be glorified.